Well, good morning. If you uh, have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, we are still continuing on in our study through the book of Nehemiah. This has been a, a marvelous study. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, I was reminded via <coughs> social media that this is our 10th week in the uh, book of Nehemiah. And so I'm thankful for that and thankful for all that God has been revealing through his word, through this book. Uh, we've titled this series, Rebuild. And what we have seen in this book is not only the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, but also the rebuilding or the restoring of the people's hearts. And so it's been amazing to watch how this book has really coincided with who we are as believers today and where we are as a church. And so here at Nehemiah chapter 9, we have hit the point where Nehemiah, along with Ezra, have recognized that the work is complete. The, the wall has been restored, the temple's been rebuilt, homes have been rebuilt and restored, and so the focus of the next few chapters is all about the heart of the people. And so before we dive into this text, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever noticed how in our lives failure accumulates? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how often in the evenings or even in the middle of the day when we're left alone to our thoughts, our, our thoughts naturally gravitate not towards our successes, but they gravitate towards our failures? We think about our shortcomings. We think about a lot our sins. We even think about sins of our past that the Lord has forgiven us for, but clearly we have not let go of them. In fact, uh, the statement that we've often heard throughout life is also true today as well, which is this. When we think of ourselves and think upon ourselves, we quickly realize that we are our own worst critics. So when we think about our failures over time, those failures seem to compound and accumulate. When one thing goes bad or one thing goes wrong or we sin in one area of our life, it tends to compound on upon itself. And we think about all the other times we have failed until that list just tends to pile up. In fact, I, I think about it this way. It's kind of like when you're sitting at home and you look in the kitchen and realize you don't have access to your sink because all the dishes that have piled up. Or maybe you go to your room and you're like, man, I'm really looking for that shirt, but I know that shirt is in the dirty clothes. And you see the mountain of laundry that now has stockpiled upon the uh, clothes bin, but then also on the floor as well. You see, our sin is a lot like that. And so we begin to clean up. We begin to do the dishes, which i got to be honest with you, is one of my least favorite chores. Um, so I'm thankful uh, for having uh, a sink to be able to clean them with, fresh water to clean them with. I am thankful for a dishwasher uh, because for many years in my life, we did not have one. And so it is nice to trust a machine to do what it does. But oftentimes, if your machine's like ours, it uh, normally doesn't get everything clean the way you want it to. So you end up washing a lot of things by hand as well. And then this is what happens. You sit back, you've now put the dishes up, the counter is clean, the sink is empty, and then what do you do? Well, in our family, we prepare another meal. And then guess what happens? The dishes pile up again. You see, our failures are a lot like that. Once we think we've gotten everything cleaned up, once we think we've gotten everything done, all of a sudden our thoughts hit us again and they start piling up in our lives. 
In fact, when we begin to think about our own sin and our own failures, it can add up so much that we begin to succumb to the massive weight of guilt that then hangs over us, threatening to crush us or put a stop to what we are doing. You see, the reality is when it comes to our failures... When it comes to our struggles, the only thing that is keeping our failures from crushing us is truly and simply the mercy of God. So when we look here in the book of Nehemiah, particularly in chapter 9, Nehemiah is walking the Israelites through this very same process. They are seeing their failures. They are recognizing their sin. They are struggling with their guilt. And so Nehemiah is walking them through a biblical process to not only see what God has done, but then to walk through the accumulation of sin and failure that has happened in their life to then ultimately and finally return back to the grace and mercy of God. You see, that statement is very true of our lives today. So let's begin reading, if you will. If you have your Bibles, we are in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. And if you're there already and you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Now, Nehemiah writes in Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And then for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. For you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now, Lord, thanking you for this day. God, we thank you that no matter what is happening in our life, no matter what faults, failures, sins accumulate, Father, in this moment, we can pause from it all and simply focus on you. God, it is your name that deserves to be praised. Lord, blessed be your glorious name from everlasting to everlasting. And so, Father, now we pray that you would be with us, open our hearts and our minds, tune our ears and our eyes to your truth, and God, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for loving us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
Now, we have only covered the first six verses of Nehemiah, but I want to go ahead and let you know, we are actually about to walk through this entire chapter, okay? So everything that's going to happen that we're going to talk about today, you're going to need to go back and read all of chapter 9. But what I want to do is I want to focus on the introduction, and then we are going to simply walk through the rest of this chapter. Now, already we know in chapters 1 through 6, we have seen Nehemiah, under the will, plan, and purpose of God, help reconstruct the wall of Jerusalem. He's helped rebuild, along with Ezra, the temple of God, and homes have now been restored. All of a sudden, the Israelites now find themselves set apart as God's holy people in God's holy city. And so Nehemiah's plan A, which was God's plan, is coming to fruition. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in this middle section, particularly Nehemiah chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and so forth. We see now Nehemiah turns his attention to the lives of the people, not just their stuff or walls or homes, but the actual hearts of the people. And so what we will then see is once the people have now had their hearts restored, we will then get to the last chapter of Nehemiah where we will find that the covenant that the people made with God will eventually and ultimately again be broken by the people. However, in Nehemiah chapter 9, in Nehemiah 9, we see praise for both God's mercy and confession for their sin, but also the sin of the nation. And so the festival of booths has now happened, and it is now complete. And so what the people do is they end up going back to where they left off with the word of God on the first day. They begin to realize and recognize their failures. They realize and recognize their sin, and they begin to weep and mourn in response to realizing just how far they have fallen away from God. Have we given much thought to how far we have ever fallen away from God. In fact, in verse 1, we see the people upon thinking this. It says that the people were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and earth, or dust, if you will, was on their heads. You see, what the people are doing here is they are dealing with the unfinished business that we saw back in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. They are mourning their conduct, and they are seeking to repent of their sin. You know, the reality is this is actually a remarkable moment because what's happening here is back in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people first felt and sensed the conviction of their failures, both individually and corporately. But because of the word of God, God commanded them to pause for a moment to deal with the festival of booths. And then what ends up happening is once the festival is over, a month later, from their conviction, they return to deal with their sins. You see, have we ever had a moment where we have been convicted of sin at a time where it was not appropriate to deal with? The reality is, according to what we see here in the Word of God, that is very likely. And it can be very possible for all of us. These moments will come in our life, and we should praise God for them. However, like the Israelites, 
Let's make sure we always return to conviction. Let's make sure we always take care of the business at hand, which is the unfinished business of dealing with our failures and shortcomings. In verse 2, we see that the Israelites separate themselves from the foreigners, not because they were better or thought of themselves as higher than the other people who had now returned to Jerusalem, but because they knew the foreigners would not understand what was happening. You see, Israel realized that it not only needed to confess its sin individually, it also needed to deal with its sin corporately as a nation. So the nation of Israel here is confessing that everything that they have received, they received from God. And their sin was this. Even though they had received everything from God, they appreciated nothing that he had given to them. As a church today, do we appreciate the blessings of God? As individuals today, do we appreciate what it is that God has given to us? As a nation, do we still appreciate what God has given to us? I mean, when was the last time we honestly sat down and thanked God for him being the provider? When was the last time as a nation we thanked God that he was the sustainer of all things? When was the last time we thanked God that we even live in a nation where we could freely speak of our faith and attend church without persecution. You see, in places all over the world today, places in the Middle East, in Angola, in the Far East, there are churches that gather that have to gather in secret because if people find out who they are and where they are and what they are doing, and more importantly, who it is they're worshiping, they will be thrown in prison. They will be persecuted. They will be beaten. They will be killed simply because of their faith. But yet here we sit. We have a building. We have air condition. Praise God. We have lights that work. We even have a sign that tells you who we are. We have another sign below that sign that not only tells you who we are, it tells you when we meet. It tells you exactly what we're doing. We don't have to hide about it. We don't have to shy away from it. People know we are gathered here today. But let's remember, we are gathered just as they are in the Far East, just as they are in Angola, just as they are in the Middle East. We are gathered because of the grace and mercy of God. Let us be thankful for what God has done for us. Let us be thankful that just as those churches overseas meet today, so too do we meet. And we are simply here because of the provision and how God has sustained and held his church. Not because of any one pastor or any one person or any groups of people or because our building's really pretty. No, no, no. We are here because of the grace and mercy of God. So when was the last time we thanked him for that blessing? 
You see, that's where the Israelites found themselves. And then they get to verse 3. And then verse 3, one of the most powerful things happens. And I just want to read it to you. It says, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Now, to define a day for an Israelite was sun up to sundown, So not a full 24 hours. So think about this for a moment. The people of God, the Israelites, read from the word of God for three hours. Who's ready for that sermon? I am. Not today. My allergies are eating me up. I don't know if I could get through a full hour, let alone a full three hours. But thanks be to God, there are other people who could stand up here and and teach and preach as faithfully as well. But then notice what happens. Not only did they listen to the word of God for three hours, but it then led them to three more hours of repentance and worship. So think about this for a moment. The Israelites found themselves in a moment where they are hearing the word of God, they are repenting of their sin, and they are praising his name, and it lasted for six hours. That's powerful when we think about it. In fact, it convicts me, and it should convict us when we think about it, because here in the United States, as the American Evangelical Church, we barely give God two hours out of our week, let alone six hours out of one day. How many of us worship God daily, individually? How many of us gather together on Sundays? There are many churches across our country right now where people are sitting in pews and they get upset because the pastor has gone over in his sermon. Yet here we have the people of God hearing the word of God for three hours. And then three hours after, they are responding to the word of God through worship. When was the last time we were that passionate about corporate worship? You see, this passage right here in verse 3 should drive us to our knees and say, God, forgive us as a church. Forgive us as a church where in a free country where we can worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for where we don't bother giving you the time you deserve. You see, if we're going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, then we need to bless his name every day. If we're going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, then corporately together, we should gather. And irregardless of time, we should worship. Verse 4 and 5, we see a list of names of those who are leading the worship service. And the people in these passages are called upon to bless and worship God as the one true God who has no beginning and no end. In other words, God exists for all time and has been with us for all time. And so for the people, they not only recognize their sin, but in recognizing their sin, it should also lead them to praising God for being ever-present in in their lives. You see, God deserves more praise than we could ever express. Are we thankful that God is present in every aspect of our lives? Is he truly worthy of our praise? And if so, is his praise from us reflected in our lives? Because the reality is this, whether in success or whether in failure, God is there. 
God sees us. God knows us. And if you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 7 and in the first part of chapter 8, we know this of God. It is God who delights in us. You see, God always sees, hears, and knows his people. There is no dark corner of the world or no rock we can crawl under that would escape the sight of God. And he is always present and always with us. We get into verses 6 through 37, and what we see here is we now get into the content of the way people made confession and worship the Lord. In fact, what we see here through verse 37 is the fullest summary of the storyline of the Old Testament found within the Old Testament. Here, Nehemiah is giving us a biblical theological summary of the entire Old Testament from what he knows and has read. So if you've ever wanted to understand how someone being led by the Spirit of God understands the Old Testament, then here it is. Nehemiah goes through and he highlights the key moments in order to show that the Old Testament reveals a cyclical pattern about who God is, but also about who the nation of Israel is. And we see this pattern of repent, rinse, and then repeat. And it happens throughout the history of the Israelite nation. When we get into verse 6, we see that all repentance ultimately starts with or leads us to adoration of God or praise to God. You see, the Israelites recognized that there was only one God, and praising God begins with acknowledging that he alone deserves credit for all of creation. And then we get into verse 7, and we see the cycle begin. So just follow along with me. In verses 7 through 15, we see the provision of God and his ability to sustain the people. Then we get into verse 16 and 18, and what happens is the people become stiff-necked, not listening and acting arrogantly, just like the Egyptians did during the plagues when the Israelites were enslaved to them. And yet it was God who freed them, and yet they still wanted to be slaves again. So the Levites here in these passages are calling out the people's sin in order to call them to repent. We get into verse 19 through 21, and we see the rinse happen, or the wash happen, if you will. God still keeps his covenant in spite of Israel's sin. God still provides in, in, in spite of Israel's sin. God still shows mercy to his people in spite of their sin. And then we get into verse 22 through 25, and the pattern repeats itself again. Because here in these passages, we see God provide again for the needs of the people by giving them lands. He gives them kingdoms. He gives them everything they ever wanted. So even in the midst of Israel's sin, God still gives and provides. But notice what happens in verse 26. We see the history of Israel revealed. We see Israel is called to be disobedient, and they rebel against God. So we see this rebellion happen again, according to the Levites and Nehemiah, which then leads to a call to repent yet 
again. And so then we get into verse 27 and 28, and God hears the cry of the people according to Nehemiah, and he rinses them, or he washes them in his mercy. He washes them by his compassion. He delivers them by sending rescuers in the form of judges. And so here we see Nehemiah talking about the book of Judges. But then notice what happens in verses 29 through 33. Here comes the repeat again. God warns the people to turn back to the law of God. We see that God is patient. God is kind. We see in these passages his mercy and his provision for Israel and its leaders. And then we also see in verses 30 through 33, we see God's plan of restoration for his people. And then we get to verse 34 and 35, according to Nehemiah. And we see repentance is called for again because the leaders have not kept the law and have now led the people astray. Then you get to verse 36 and 37. And what happens after repentance? We see the rinse. We see the wash happen again because the people call upon the mercy of the Lord to free them from being enslaved in their sins in this new land. And they call to the Lord to deliver the people again by his mercy. You see, throughout these passages from verse 6 all the way down to verse 37, we see a pattern. And that pattern is this. Throughout history, God has provided. Throughout history, God has been faithful. Throughout history, God has been with us. In fact, he's been with us since day one of creation. Yet throughout history, it is the Israelites who have grown numb. They commit sin. They fail and they become reckless towards God. Throughout history, not just the Israelites, but us, God's people, those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, it is us who have grown numb. It is us who have committed sin. It is us who have failed. It is us who begin to crumble under the weight of the guilt of our failures. And it is us who has become reckless towards God. But then notice this. Notice there has always been a call to repent. It started with Abraham in the Old Testament, and then it was given to Moses when he gave the Ten Commandments of God. Fast forward, and we see it here again in Nehemiah chapter 9 through Nehemiah and Ezra. And then you fast forward into the New Testament, and we see the Gospels begin with the message of John the Baptist, which is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We even see it in Jesus' life and his ministry when he calls the people to what? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is upon them. And and then we see it again in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 8, 9 and 10 and so on where the church begins to call people to repentance. We see it throughout the Pauline letters of the New Testament where Paul's central message was to repent and turn to the, great, the grace and hope and mercy that can be found in Jesus Christ. And then we get to Revelation, the vision that John is given of how all things will end and what do we see happen there? We see the message of repentance come again and a call to follow the grace, mercy, and hope that can be found in Christ because at the end of time it will be the grace and mercy and hope in Christ that will win the day. Yeah. 
We have been called to repentance. That call is clear upon our life. The message is simple. Repent and turn to Jesus. But you see, here's the beauty of the message. When we repent of our sin, when we repent of our failures, when we let go of the guilt and simply trust in Christ, we become rinsed, we become washed. We are made new. All because of God's great mercy and the love that he had for us in giving us his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sin. You see, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we see the great mercy of God. But here's the goal for the modern church. We've got to break the pattern of repetition. We've got to break the pattern of repeating ourselves and repeating our sin. Are we going to sin? Are we going to continue to sin? Yes, absolutely we're going to sin. But this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. We can't simply look around and say, well, because of the grace and mercy of God, I can commit this sin and the Lord will forgive me. No, that's not how it works. Rather, what we need to do as a church is we need to put a stop to the broken record. We need to put a stop to dwelling upon our sin. We need to put a stop to repeated sin and say this, my God is enough. His grace is sufficient and he is all that I need. And there is no sin that is greater than God. What I need can be found in Christ. Now, what's interesting is we get to verse 38. After hearing this beautiful history of the Old Testament as Nehemiah knows it. Now, clearly he doesn't know everything. He hasn't, he hasn't seen what happens during David's time. He doesn't know yet about the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah or the minor prophets. He doesn't know all that stuff just yet. So we get a, a snapshot of his vision. But then notice what verse 38 does. After seeing this pattern of repentance, this pattern of forgiveness, and then this pattern of repeating itself, notice what happens in verse 38. It says this, because of all this. The this being the repent, rinse, and repeat. Because of all this, we, the people of God, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. In other words, what the Levites are calling for here is they are calling for a covenant in order to keep the covenant that the people made with God. This is a calling for the people to come back to their commitment to God. You see, for us today, to say of ourselves that we are Christians, to say of ourselves that we are followers of Christ, we too have to answer the call to keep our commitment with God. We too have to answer the call of keeping God our first priority. So here's the question for us today. Are we truly committed to God? Are we truly committed to our relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he our number one priority or does he get the leftovers? 
where does our commitment stand with the Lord? You see, we all have failures. If there's one thing we can honestly say about each one of us in this room, we have all failed. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And over time, our failures and our sins, well, they've accumulated over time. But the beauty of it all is that the mercy of God keeps our sin from crushing us. But then God takes it one step further in Christ. Not only does the mercy of God keep our sin from overwhelming us and crushing us, but notice this, in Christ, there is no sin that cannot be covered by the grace, the mercy, and the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been atoned for in Christ because of God's great love for us. You see, all of our sin, all of God's wrath was laid upon the shoulders of Christ at the cross. And so do we see God's great mercies? Do we see and understand our own sin? Do we see our need for him? And are we ready to keep covenant with God through Christ? Because he is there, he is faithful, he has provided, and he is sufficient. Are we keeping covenant with the one true God? You see, Christian, we're going to struggle. We're going to be like Israel. We're going to fail. And if you don't fail, I'd love to talk to you because I'd like to know what you're doing. And if that doesn't help, then maybe I can point out some of your failures. Pretty good at that. We all are. We do. We're going to struggle. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to struggle with guilt. But when we do, Let's look to the mercy of God. Let's look to the hope that can be found in Christ. Let's look to the joy with which he has given to us. Because remember, it is God who delights in us. God loves us, and he will always be there, and he will keep his commitment. Let us look to how we have been rinsed and washed clean of our sin. And then in the next moment, may we be like the Israelites and may we celebrate God's great mercy upon us all. Thanks be to God who has given us Christ. And because of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. He has atoned for them. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together.